Hello, my name's Catherine Griffiths and I'm the editor of The Lawyer. And I'm Christian Smith, the litigation editor at The Lawyer. And welcome to the first episode of the brand new The Lawyer podcast. Thanks for joining us. We're very excited to be here. What are we doing here, Kat? Well, Christian, every fortnight on the podcast, we'll dive into a pick of the top stories and trends shaking the UK legal market with our reporters and editors who are out there covering it all. They'll be joining us in the studio to tell us what they're seeing, what they're hearing and why it all matters. It is a pivotal moment of risk, opportunity and change for what is one of the world's central legal hubs. As always, the lawyer is here to dissect what you need to know, both for those within the profession and without. This episode, we're going to talk about Slaughter and May's memo to associates, whether US firms in London are starting to feel the chill, and who's getting all the litigation work for big tech. But first, we thought we'd take you on a whirlwind tour of some of the stories making the news this fortnight. In an effort to hit its emissions targets, UK firm Shoesmiths has announced that partners will have to pay a £200 levy every time they hop on a plane. Annual US firm partner promotions are in full swing. Latham, Kirkland and White and Case have already made up 10, 26 and 10 in London respectively. They still see London as a growth market. Speaking of Leviathans, Clifford Chance looks set to leave its enormous offices at 10 Upper Bank Street in Canary Wharf. Nearly 20 years after it first shifted east, the Magic Circle firm seems to have had enough of the concrete jungle. It's not all city, city, city. In the last few weeks, Gowling has opened in Leeds to bolster its regeneration practice. Lewis Silking and Lanier, Longstaff, Hedder and Roberts, a new group litigation firm, have launched in Manchester, and there's a lot more movement in the north to come. And finally, further afield, firms have been setting up shop in Singapore left, right and centre. In October alone, Charles Russell Speechley, Mayor Brown, Goodwin Proctor and Perez Yorker have all announced intentions to move in. Well, we dive now into the first of our main stories, and that means starting with Slaughter and May. The blue chip firm unveiled last week a work-life balance code, something it had trailed last July. Now, the most eye-catching provisions are that associates can turn off their cameras between 8pm and 8am. They don't need to check emails more than a few times over the weekend as well. I mean, Kat, tell me about this. Is it really that radical? Well, for us civilians, it doesn't seem desperately revolutionary, but there are some interesting ideas on offer. Um, Slaughter's is formally allowing associates to agree periods of time for leave, such as school holidays, um, and reduce by up to 20% or take unpaid leave between jobs. It's what they call the switch on, switch off project. And actually, Slaughter's insiders tell us that that has been the most successful of the options. And never forget that this all addresses the issue of time. It's not pay, but time. That's really interesting. I mean, is this a reaction to US firms? Is is it a defensive move? Well, in a roundabout way, it's defensive in the sense that it's about managing built-in attrition. Um, but actually, so far this year, our data tells us that more associates have actually left Slaughter and May for Mishcon than Kirkland and Ellis. And 
if you look over the last couple of years, other destinations of Slaughter's Leavers are as likely to include Farrers and Bristows and Adelshaw Goddard as, as they are Latham or Simpson Thatcher. But actually, I don't think the US versus, versus UK narrative is in itself healthy or accurate. Um, the, the US firms, because they pay in the dollar, together create a block that creates this general inflationary pressure on city wages. But if you look at them in pure practice terms, they are not monolithic. Aiken Gump, Baker Botts, I mean, they're amongst the, the highest payers in the city, but they're not recruiting en masse out of slaughters. And similarly, you know, slaughters is not competing in the same space as Farrers or Bristows or Adelshaws, which, you know, as I said, have been these favoured destinations of, of associate leavers over the last couple of years. So, so all of this is more of a general response to an issue that besets all of city law, which is how to balance partner profitability with associate pay and hours and career progression. And if anything, actually, I think the onus is now on the US firms to be imaginative. And, and are they being imaginative? Well, I've, I've seen zero evidence of imagination <laughs> so far. And I, I'm, I am not sure that many US firms leaders in London can actually see past the dollar. Um, and obviously, the dollar is a really super powerful weapon. Um, I'm just thinking that this week... It was just today when we we're recording this podcast. The lawyer revealed that Boy Schiller has proposed a model where associates can stay on standard pay they have, or switch over where to a scheme where salary is calculated based on the percentage of hours they work. It's it's kind of ingenious, but is it imaginative? I'm really not sure. Um, so the dollar is really one weapon in the U.S. firm's armory, uh, and it's pretty much their only weapon. There's not any great strategic thinking about their city offering um, because those big pay rises in London are themselves the ripples outwards from Wall Street. Now, it's really clear that money can attract associates because if you are working 2,000 hours at a UK firm and giving up your life to do it, you can see why an associate might want to go for more pay. Uh, But it is fundamentally a one-dimensional offer. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I mean, people go to firms for different reasons. But if all of a sudden you find yourself in a firm that is, you know, billing you out at US hours annually, at the number of US hours annually, well, why wouldn't you go for more? But at the same time, I mean, everything's changing so much with working habits. Firms have to offer something different if they can't meet those US those US firms. I mean, what do you think the effect of the slaughters memo will actually be? I mean, I remember we had a recent Horizon email. Uh, where we suggested that you know slaughters was potentially becoming a lifestyle firm, which which seems ridiculous given given its strong and long history. Um, does it stand up that in the future it might actually be this firm where where associates go? Well, I'm going to go to slaughters because it's a nicer life than going to Kirkland. Yeah, I mean we uh, uh, the use of the word lifestyle firm was a provocative uh, headline. We we kind of wanted to challenge the assumption that this debate has to be money or U.S. firms on one side versus lifestyle or U.K. firms on the other, and. You know, as you said, there's no way that slaughters or other leading city firms are going to be a lifestyle choice. Um, but you have to remember that, you know, an internal slaughters survey suggested that around three quarters of, of its associates have no ambition to make partner there. So all of this is part of a more general debate around talent development. And, and the big battleground for associates 
really, again, needs to move away from pay to time. Um, And I think that the more thoughtful managing partners, uh, the ones that I've been speaking to, are, are taking it really seriously as a way of leading their own thinking. So so I think the Slaughter's Memo will be the first of many city firm associate resets. It is really something that grabs attention more than almost anything now and is what we hear most from lawyers themselves. I mean, even two and a half years into the pandemic, everyone is still following like a hawk how firms are handling ways of working. Uh, Kat, thank you very much. We've talked about the power of the dollar and how that has benefited US firms in London, whatever their practice areas, from private equity or projects to immigration and litigation. So let's have a closer look at what the lawyer's data is telling us. With us here is Matt Byrne, Director of Insight at The Lawyer and our resident expert on law firms' financial performance, particularly US firms in London. Now, Matt, over to you. What are your thoughts about US firms' performance? And secondly, how that performance impacts the UK headquartered cohort? Oh, thanks, Kat. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of context here to unpick, isn't there, really? I mean, clearly, US firms have been one of the strongest motors of the city market for, for what, last two or three years? Um, and that's more than clear from our data in a variety of reports. Things like the US 50, the City 50, and uh, the UK Corporate 50. Now, last year was definitely a landmark year for US firms in the UK. Four of them grew their UK revenue by more than 50%, <laughs> which is astonishing. Um, Goodwin's revenues rose by 63% last year. Uh, Simpson Thatcher and Wild Gotchell were both up uh, by 43% to around $300 million. And of course, Latham and Kirkland both now have London offices that bill well in excess of half a billion dollars a year. So, and, and there's more. There are now 24 US headquartered firms in our city 50. That's up from 21 when we launched the ranking in 2017. And in our UK corporate 50, the most startling finding was that for the first time ever, a US firm, Latham again, topped the ranking. Now, these are astonishing findings, but the challenge for US firms is going to be to maintain revenue and profit levels. And I'd say the signs are that that's not going to be easy. Uh, Yeah, this is the really interesting point um, that I think is is sort of an unanswered question at the moment. Um, I mean, you obviously, all the reports you've been mentioning, that you've been talking about the last financial year. But if you think about what's coming around the corner, I've got here some Q3 figures from Refinitiv. They show that total deal value of M&A plummeted by 55% year on year. And that's the largest Mm. fall since the global financial crisis in 2009. Are are US firms in London at all worried about this? What what are you hearing? Yeah, I mean, it's astonishing, isn't it? And um, obviously, thanks to their calendar year end for most of them, US firms are kind of like the canary in the coal mine when it comes to next year's results. And as I say, the signs are, uh, particularly because of that kind of data, it won't be pretty. Now, anecdotally, we're already hearing that several firms are going to be flat or down. Less anecdotally, as you pointed out, the deals activity that's powered many of these firms is is shuddering, if not to a halt, then at least a big slowdown. But, you know, let's let's put look at the other side. You know, despite these drops, North America is still the M&A powerhouse internationally. Uh, US and Canadian acquirers 
initiated about 40% of all cross-border deals so far this year. And UK companies were the second most targeted in the world. So I think what it amounts to is a market where deals levels are definitely plummeting, but the deals that there are will tend to favour firms with a strong US component. Matt, let me let me press you. Um, yeah. What's the outlook? <laughs> okay. What what is the outlook for US firms in London? You know, if you're an associate sitting in a US firm, should you be worried, or what's your thinking? Uh, it's always dangerous to generalise, isn't it? And it's worth remembering that there's nothing homogenous about US firms. They're not all deals junkies. Some are full service. Some are much more disputes focused. Some even pay their associates normal levels of salary, believe it or not. (laughs) But inevitably, I think there will be redundancies next year. Now, this raises the question of whether or not US firms are as well set up culturally to deal with a period of downturn as they seem to be with a boom. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question, isn't it? And I just wonder if there are any bright spots for UK firms, um, because there is that strand of UK firms that have massively benefited from the US firms themselves. Unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, if you you go back to the starting point of the conversation, which is the context of growth, US firms have just grown astonishingly and generated something like six billion quid in the in the UK alone last year. And on a lot of that work, they need UK firms to partner with. So what you've been seeing over the last few years as US firms have grown as a segment of the market is uh, a, a number of solid independent domestic players focusing on US firms are a bit of a godsend, actually. They've become a core part of their strategy. And they they absolutely spend just as much time staying close to them as they do for the, do their clients. Um, so for those UK firms that consider themselves uh, partners, this is a godsend. For those UK firms that consider themselves competitors and continue to lose their top talent to uh, those firms that can afford to pay astronomical salaries, not so much. Matt, thank you. Um, uh, I know you've only skimmed the surface of the data that we do have. So if listeners do have any questions you want Matt to delve into, uh, then let us know at podcast at thelawyer.com. Matt, thanks. It's been a big week in the tech world with Elon Musk finally taking over Twitter. Now, his lawyers in the US will be very happy with the outcome with McDermott acting on the deal itself and Quinn on for the later court dispute. But tech lawyers of some capacity are pretty much mandatory for any large law firm now because the potential workflow from clients like Twitter and Meta and Google is enormous. The lawyer senior litigation reporter Adam Mawadi has been diving into the tech litigation landscape for this week's edition of The Hearing. He joins us now. Adam, this workflow for tech lawyers, it's only likely to get bigger, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, because there are really, there's three big challenges which big tech faces now, particularly in the UK. First of all, there's regulation. There's the uh, highly anticipated online safety bill that was that's expected to in- introduce 
tough controls onto big tech. Um, the legislation was meant to return to Parliament this week, but it was delayed again due to political mayhem with the Tory leadership crisis. Um, the second challenge is the rise of huge group actions, particularly at the Competition Appeal Tribunal, which sees law firms and litigation funders seeking millions, even billions of pounds in compensation on behalf of, 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 of millions of consumers. Um, and then you have the third challenge is then you have questions around consumer data. Last year's Supreme Court judgment in Lord and Google set a massive setback for the Q law firms and funders hoping to bring mass data breach claims against big tech. A year later, lawyers are exploring new and creative ways to bring claims which get around the decision of Lloyd and Google. So, I mean, what sort of claims would those be? An example is the claim brought by Quinn Manuel against Meta. That is a competition claim. It's brought in the Competition Appeal Tribunal, but at the heart of the claim is a... Um, is is data. And I mean, obviously, there's quite a few firms acting in this area. I mean, in the, in the UK, who's likely to benefit from this most, do you think? Well, one firm that's really well positioned as big tech's go-to UK advisor is RPC. Um, just look at the lawyers, the litigation tracker, you'll see the likes of Google, Meta and Twitter, all clients of the firm. Um, litigators will have spotted uh, RPC acting for Tech UK in its ret- written intervention in last year's Lauren and Google case. Um, it's also defending Google twice at the Competition Appeal Tribunal, um, challenging an antitrust action brought by Epic Games, which is the studio behind Fortnite, uh, plus um, a consumer action brought by Hausfeld over allegations that Google's Play Store overcharged nearly 20 million cons- customers. Um, also, RPC was involved in the inquest into the death of British teenager Molly Russell, who sadly killed herself after viewing posts um, after viewing online posts about self harm and suicide. I mean, well, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, that, that client list alone is is quite something. I, I mean, who else is out there? There's obviously people appearing on the other side as well, and it's not just all RPC. Well, fortunately for law firm rivals, it's a lot of work particularly in litigation, uh, to go around. And, and the needs are just too much for one firm like RPC to handle. Um, again, as a litigation tracker, data shows you've, uh, the tech titans have their favourite defenders. You've got the likes of Pinter Masons, Bristow's, Herbert Smith, Freehills, which have repeatedly been on call for Google. Twitter often calls on Lewis Silkin. Um, and Meta's external advisors also include those from White Case, Alan Overy, and Freshfields. Um, interestingly, you've got the likes of Mishkondorea acting for both claimants, um, as seen by its mer- recent merger with Boutique Tale of Inters. It wants to service tech companies from startup to maturity. And on the other hand, you've got Mishkondorea suing uh, Facebook, for example. So you've got firms doing both. It's really interesting, actually, because there's, there's different types of the legal profession, different types of the litigation. Often, you know, sometimes you do get areas where firms can act for both sides. Like I think that's quite often the case in areas when, you know, firms acting for the big four accounting firms and that sort of thing. It, 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 but... On the other hand, you, do, you have other areas like, for example, defamation and libel law, where it's very much divided down the middle. It's interesting. I mean, it will be really interesting to see as tech continues to, ve- to develop whether Mishcon can muscle its way in there like that. I think bringing it back to RPC, you know, RPC has obviously made a name for itself in the tech sphere. But at the same time, you know, there's such an interaction nowadays between tech and competition. Um and at the same time, you know, RPC lost their head of competition really recently, um, who went to Quinn, and and you know, it's it's pretty cutthroat out there. Yeah, I mean, that because because the competition appeal tribunal is so busy, there's so many claims being filed at the moment, um, and for these claims to 
and, and to, to service these claims, you're going to need lawyers. So particularly the bar, there's a real shortage of barristers um, who are available to work on these claims. So um, it's, it's really a, a busy time for competition lawyers right now in the city. Thanks, Adam. And if you want more of that insight into the disputes market, then do subscribe to Litigation Tracker, part of The Lawyer. Thank you for listening to The Lawyer podcast. We are happy to hear all your comments and suggestions. Email us at podcast at Thank you for listening. Until the next podcast, goodbye. goodbye.